If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. On today's podcast, we're marking the 50th anniversary of the 30th of January 1972, a date that became known as Bloody Sunday, when British soldiers opened fire on civil rights demonstrators in Londonderry. Rhiannon Davis spoke to Professor Dermot Ferreter of University College Dublin. They discussed the events of that day and the effect that it still has on the people and politics of Northern Ireland. So thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. My first question is, what was the situation like in Ireland in the lead up to Bloody Sunday? The situation in Ireland in the lead up to Bloody Sunday was fraught, and difficult and contested. The troubles had begun in earnest in 1969. Nobody knew, of course, at that stage how they would unfold, how long they would last, and and what the extent of the trouble would be. But it was becoming clear, of course, over the course of 1970 and 1971 and into 1972 that things were very, very difficult. 1972 proved to be a horrendous year in Ireland. It was the worst year of the Troubles 
Almost 500 people were killed as a result of the Troubles. And Bloody Sunday, of course, happened at the very beginning of that year. So it really was about the full extent of the crisis that engulfed the island as a result of the outbreak of the Troubles. And it had huge implications, not just for the people in Northern Ireland, most obviously, but also in relation to Anglo-Irish affairs, which really were reaching one of their most difficult points. And what exactly is Bloody Sunday? What happened? Bloody Sunday was as a result of a security situation in Northern Ireland. Uh, There was an attempt to try and prevent people from assembling, from marching, from protesting in a way that they saw fit. Bloody Sunday was... Uh, about a march that was organised by the Northern Ireland Civil Rights Association. And that association had been formed in 1967 in advance of the outbreak of the violence. It was obviously a a, a campaign for the civil rights of citizens of Northern Ireland uh, to be vindicated uh, in relation to housing, in relation to voting rights, in relation to their status as as citizens. Um, And they were obviously emerging in a contested state. Uh, There was a very substantial minority of largely Catholic nationalists who felt they were treated as second-class citizens. So the Northern Ireland Civil Rights Association, uh, seeking inspiration from what was going on abroad as well at that time, the international context was important. Uh, They began to mobilise, they began to march. Um, Many of those marches um, were about bringing men and women together in peaceful protest. Uh, And of course, what complicated that, uh, particularly from 1968, 1969, um, was the reaction uh, of the security forces in Northern Ireland, uh, the sense that there was um, a disputed idea around the right to to mobilise and to protest in the way that they were doing. Um, And then you had in 1971, in August 1971, the introduction of internment. Uh, And this uh, involved um, many suspects being rounded up um, and subjected to internment without trial. It caused great anger uh, in Northern Ireland. And the march that was organised for the 30th of January 1972 was to protest against internment. Uh, which obviously um, had generated very strong feeling uh, across Northern Ireland, and particularly, of course, in in places like uh, Derry City and Belfast. So the march that was planned for the 30th of January 1972 was a protest march against internment. Uh, These marches had been banned and prohibited, which was another indication of the the worsening uh, security uh, situation and the political volatility in Northern Ireland at that time. So it's clear in the run-up to this planned march of the 30th of January 1972 that there had been a number of other contested assemblies and contested marches. Um, And this was to be a sizable demonstration against a policy that was causing considerable anger amongst the nationalist population. And what kind of people attended the march? All sorts of people attended the march. I mean, there was a good cross-section of nationalist dairy uh, on this march. Um, Many people were from the working-class estates uh, of Derry, but you also, of course, had those who were involved as as kind of middle-class activists, uh, those who were leaders or leading lights within uh, the civil rights movement, um, men, women, and younger people. So uh, a good cross-section. 
And the march disintegrates and violence breaks out. Can you tell us a bit about that? How much do we know about what happened and when? Well, the original plan was for the marchers to leave uh, the Cregan area of Derry's Bogside um, and to march towards the city centre and to assemble uh, in the city centre. But the march was diverted. They weren't allowed to go to the city centre and they ended up um, uh, moving towards uh, Derry, uh, the Free Derry Corner, as it was known. Um, and it's at this juncture, of course, that you get very um, contested narratives um, uh, about what precisely occurred. And of course, this has been subjected to uh, endless scrutiny and, and a number of different inquiries over the decades. Um, it's clear that there was uh, a determination on the part of the organisers that this would be a peaceful protest because they were very cognizant of what had happened in relation to some previous marches um, that had been marred by violence. So there was a determination to try and keep this uh, protest peaceful. Um, but there were some who broke off uh, from the march and who were objecting to the attempt to prevent them uh, from going where they wanted to go to. Um, and of course, the presence of British army troops was seen as particularly uh, provocative. Um, and it was the reaction um, to those who were challenging uh, the British army, whether that was uh, with uh, missiles uh, or, or taunts, um, that ultimately led to uh, the mobilisation of the parachute regiment who began to shoot on the unarmed protesters. And how many people died in the shooting? 13 people were killed directly on Bloody Sunday. A 14th victim died later as a result of, of injuries. Um, there were at least 15 people uh, in addition to those who died who were injured on the day. And of course, countless others were ter terrorised and traumatised by the events. And can you tell us a bit about the victims? These events happened, of course, very, very quickly. Um, and this was partly about the civilians being in, in, in pursued in, in, into a number of small areas. Um, and within a few seconds, the soldiers had fatally shot 26-year-old William McKinney and 22-year-old Jim Ray. And they were both shot in the back. And of course, this uh, was another very difficult aspect of, of, of Bloody Sunday, the shooting of civilians uh, in, in, in the back. Um, and Ray was actually shot a second time uh, when he was already on the ground. Um, and then th there were also others, of course, who, who were shot and injured in that way. Um, and that was the nature of the killings on that day. And you've mentioned that a lot of this history is very contested. Something I wanted to know about is, do we know who fired first? Do we know where the aggression first came from? There's been an extraordinary effort over the decades to amass as much information as possible in relation to every single moment of that day and of that march and of the reaction um, of the marchers and the soldiers to what was going on. The Savile Inquiry, of course, in particular, uh, which was established in 1998, became the longest running such inquiry in British legal history. Um, its report uh, is over um, 10 different volumes. It amounts to about 5,000 pages. Uh, it involved the testimony and, and taking account of the testimony um, of, of hundreds of individuals, um, hundreds were also uh, cross-examined um, when they gave testimony in public. Um, experts of all 
different shades uh, were called upon to uh, to give their assessment uh, of what happened on Bloody Sunday. So uh, I think it's fair to say, um, given those exhaustive inquiries, that we can establish with considerable confidence uh, that it was the British Army uh, that shot first. There is evidence that there were uh, that there was some uh, shooting by Republicans uh, afterwards, uh, but it's quite clear that the despite some of the assertions that were made in the immediate aftermath of Bloody Sunday, uh, that those who were shot and those who were killed on on Bloody Sunday were unarmed, they were entirely uh, innocent, um, and that there was no firing of any arms before the British soldiers reacted the way they did. And can you tell us a bit about those assertions made in the immediate aftermath? I'm assuming this is coming from the British. Well, I think you have to remember that this was a propaganda war as well as everything else. I mean, I was very conscious as a historian in in looking at Bloody Sunday in 1972 that it was the second Bloody Sunday. There had been a previous Bloody Sunday in Ireland during the War of Independence in 1920 uh, when a combination of Crown forces um, had opened fire on a sports match at Croke Park Stadium uh, in Dublin. Um, And again, how the narrative unfolded after that had much to do with propaganda. The idea that the British government was was so keen to insist that it had its Irish problem under control, that it could contain its Irish problem, that this wasn't a war. Um, And there are certain parallels with what happens in 1972, um, Lord Widgery, the Lord Chief Justice, was charged with the task of, of presiding over an inquiry um, in, in, into what had happened. And he was reminded, according to documents in the Public Record Office that were discovered in 1995, uh, that there was a propaganda war going on. Um, there's a, a very determined attempt to control the narrative from the British perspective um, at the earliest stage. And that, of course, is about uh, manufacturing this narrative that what was done by the soldiers of the parachute regiment was a reaction to them being placed in mortal danger, that they were reacting uh, to shots being fired by the IRA, that they were protecting themselves and their fellow soldiers, uh, and that they were not to blame. Um, And that narrative was sustained over the Widgery report, which ultimately became completely uh, discredited. Um, But it was a part of that wider uh, propaganda campaign. It's also an effort, I think, to close down um, the... Uh, wider issues around Bloody Sunday. And in particular, it's also part of a determined attempt to exclude the personal testimony of those who were on the marches, those who were up close uh, to the events, um, what they had witnessed, what they had seen. Um, and in that sense, of course, it's it's not giving in any sense uh, a rounded picture. Why were they so keen to exclude those testimonies? They were so keen to exclude those testimonies because they contradicted many of the assertions about what was going on in places like Belfast and Derry in 1971 and 1972. You've got to remember that there's a struggle to form a unified security command uh, in Ireland during this period. Um, It's also, of course, got a political dimension. What does a British government do when faced uh, with these kind of events and this depth of feeling in what is, after all, a part of the United Kingdom. Uh, it's a huge embarrassment. And remember, the troubles had been internationalised. 
television crews, photographs, uh, cameras transformed uh, the conflict in Northern Ireland and brought it to an international audience. The British government is very conscious of that. Uh, Ted Heath, who was the British Prime Minister since 1970, uh, has been referred to by historians as a slow learner uh, when it comes to to, to Irish matters uh, and Anglo-Irish affairs, and there's a fair degree of truth uh, in that. Uh, But he was also very conscious of how how it could be used to embarrass uh, the British government. So there are various different pressures. There are political pressures, but there are also military pressures. There are different perspectives when it comes to the military chiefs who are responsible for operations in Northern Ireland on how they should manage their particular challenge. Um, You know, they are not singing from the same hymn sheet. Uh, There are different perspectives depending uh, on where those individuals are. The situation in Derry was not directly comparable, for example, to the situation in Belfast. There were some who believed that a less confrontational approach uh, to the demands um, of, of nationalists um, in in Derry was required, that the situation was different in Belfast, where perhaps more force was justified. Uh, and there was a conflict between these two different perspectives. And Bloody Sunday is partly a manifestation uh, of the conflict between those two security uh, perspectives about whether uh, to stand back um, and allow these marches or whether uh, uh, to be less provocative. Um, and ultimately, of course, what emerges over the course of, of subsequent inquiries is that there were individuals who were overruled uh, in relation to their preferences around security and what the military reaction should be. It's a very complex picture. Um, and of course, there are also deep psychological elements to this uh, in relation to uh, how the security forces and the army are interacting um, with the local population. Um, but also in relation to to that local population, how do they handle the challenge of what they are experiencing? Still to come on the History Extra podcast. There was a very moving day in Guildhall Square in Derry when David Cameron, as British Prime Minister, unreservedly apologised for what had happened on Bloody Sunday. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. 
Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. And you've touched a bit on the aftermath of Bloody Sunday, but delving into that more... What is the immediate aftermath to the event in Ireland and in Britain? Well, the eyes of the world are on Northern Ireland once again for terrible reasons. And Bloody Sunday, of course, becomes a a huge international story and controversy. It does enormous damage to Anglo-Irish relations. We have the transcript of a telephone call that was made um, between the British Prime Minister Ted Heath and the Irish Prime Minister Taoiseach Jack Lynch on the night of Bloody Sunday. And when you read the transcript, you can feel the anguish, uh, the emotion on the part of Jack Lynch, the defensiveness, the defiance on the part of, of Ted Heath, who, who really blames the IRA for, as he puts it, trying to take over the country. Uh, Jack Lynch is, is struggling to contain his emotions because he's aware that feelings are rising uh, in Southern Ireland. There's an enormous reaction in the Republic of Ireland to what is happening. Um, And I think the reaction to Bloody Sunday really represents a high point of of cross-border emotion about the Troubles. Uh, Some have argued quite convincingly that it's it's a high point of unity, uh, nationalist unity, North and South, because of the scale of the reaction uh, that it unleashed Uh, People walk off their jobs uh, the day afterwards, on the Monday uh, after Bloody Sunday. There are all sorts of impromptu protests. Um, There is the burning of the British Embassy in Dublin, in Merrion Square in Dublin, uh, which was being cheered by many who would have considered themselves to be politically moderate. They wouldn't have seen themselves as extremists or radicals. Uh, And it did engender that strong reaction um, in in, in people uh, across the country. And then most importantly, of course, there's the scale of the devastation in what is, after all, a very compact uh, and small geographic area. So many families were impacted uh, by Bloody Sunday, um, not just the families of those who were killed, um, but you know the wider uh, community. And that sense of a gaping hole uh, and of a sore um, and a wound that was never fully healed and could not be uh, fully healed. This is all swirling around in the aftermath uh, of, of Bloody Sunday's Sunday and a couple of days uh, after Bloody Sunday. But there's also then a fear in the Republic that the troubles might spill over the border. And that is a concern of those who are in government at the time in Dublin in 1972. They don't want these emotions to run out of control. They don't want the security situation in the Republic Uh, to be compromised. And then you have the wider question of what the British and Irish governments do to try and bring some political reaction to this and to come up with ways of taking the heat out of the situation. So it's a very, very complex uh, picture. And wrapped around it all, of course, is, is the anguish and the grief of those who now have to bury their loved ones. 
Of course. And what was the international reaction? The international reaction was largely, I suppose, about bringing home to their audiences the scale of the problem in Northern Ireland, the depth of the feeling, um, the uh, sense of a province that was, it seemed now, to be in a permanent state of emergency. Because remember, you know, this story from Ireland uh, has been going on since the very end of the 1960s. Uh, This is an update Uh, But it seems on an even bigger scale that that many people, uh, civilians, uh, could be killed in a single day in such a small uh, compact area. Um, So that obviously generated an awful lot of interest internationally. And again, there is that wider context there um, of the the decade after the the height of the civil rights uh, movement internationally, uh, not just in the United States, but also in Europe, uh, that the Northern Ireland Civil Rights Association that had um, organised this march, did see itself as being an Irish manifestation of what was happening internationally. Therefore, it struck a chord uh, internationally in relation to people seeking to vindicate um, their civil rights. Um, and of course, that context of internment and, and the reaction uh, to internment, the introduction of internment was about the British government's uh, and the British military efforts to try and put a lid uh, on the trouble in Northern Ireland, to try and round up those individuals it regarded as the ringleaders. So there is that context of violence. um, And, you know, there's loyalist and Republican violence. um, And that is, from the British perspective, uh, their primary challenge. Those who were always referred to during this period as the men of violence, that this was about trying to deal with violence. This is how the British government and the military British military chiefs uh, would have seen it. But in reacting the way they did, you also have to think about the consequences for the IRA because the IRA is now dealing with an upsurge in enthusiasm for its project and its methods. There are many who were drawn in to the ranks of the IRA because of the scale of the anger at Bloody Sunday. There were people who were queuing up to join the IRA uh, in Derry after Bloody Sunday. So it had that consequence also. At the time, immediately after Bloody Sunday, are there pro-British narratives or is the groundswell of support firmly for the Northern Irish? Well, we have to remember how divided Northern Ireland was. And there is a unionist narrative of Bloody Sunday. Not all unionists now, I must stress, but there is a unionist narrative of Bloody Sunday, which is centred around the idea uh, that this was a deliberately provocative and violent march Uh, and that the soldiers had no option but to react the way they did uh, if they were to keep control uh, of Derry on that day. So that narrative could be developed as well. I mean, people's narratives in relation to events like Bloody Sunday uh, could be shaped, of course, by people's own political preferences and prejudices. People can have a remarkable ability to compartmentalise when it comes to events like this, um, and you know, seeking to justify their own political positions and vindicate uh, their own political views. Um, and you're dealing with a, a deeply segregated society also. Uh, there were those within the unionist community um, who did not trust uh, any of these civil rights activists. Uh, they saw them um, as, as merely doing the bidding of the men of violence. 
Um, so, I mean, you're obviously going to have um, national, nationalist narratives that are uh, in stark contrast to that. And you've mentioned support for the IRA is one of the consequences of Bloody Sunday. But how else did the event impact on the Troubles? Bloody Sunday was a defining moment in the Troubles. Sometimes I think in, in similar ways to the Bloody Sunday of 1920 being a defining moment, because the questions it raised were similar. How long can this go on? Can we generate enough political momentum to try and bring the violence uh, to an end? What is the scale of the problem that we are dealing with? How do we find a, a military approach that is balanced, that doesn't alienate the people that we're supposed to be protecting? All of those questions were being asked in 1920 in the aftermath of the Croke Park uh, Bloody Sunday. Uh, and, and what had preceded the Crow Park uh, event in 1920 was the assassination and attempted assassination uh, of a number of, of, of British intelligence agents. So there was that context to it as well. Um, 1972, there were similar questions um, uh, about uh, this being a defining moment because it um, generated such emotion uh, and such a strong reaction, uh, but it also screamed a political challenge. Can there be dialogue? Can there be an attempt to try uh, and bring the British and Irish governments together to talk about a potential political solution? And ultimately, that did gather momentum. But another fundamental issue it raised was whether or not Northern Ireland could continue to be run by Northern Ireland politicians. And Bloody Sunday ensured that direct rule was introduced shortly afterwards, that clearly the situation in Northern Ireland uh, was not being controlled um, by uh, unionist politicians who, of course, have been um, dominating Northern Ireland politically since the foundation of the state um, just 50 years previously. And you've mentioned the Bloody Sunday of 1920, but what other episodes in history are there that we can compare Bloody Sunday to in terms of its impact on Anglo-Irish relations? I think the most obvious comparison um, is with the War of Independence in the sense that there were a number of very high profile uh, incidents, ambushes, shootings and killings in 1920, particularly towards the end of the 1920, that created pressure on the British government to react by doing something differently. Uh, I think 1972 is similar. Uh, you can't ignore something on the scale uh, of, of, of Bloody Sunday 1972, in the same way that they couldn't ignore the scale of Bloody Sunday in 1920, where when over 30 people uh, were killed in Dublin City in a single day uh, in November 1920. Um, so what happens in 1972 it, it, it is quite similar in relation uh, to it raising those questions uh, about how politicians might react. Um, so I think the most obvious parallel is, is, is with what happened uh, in the War of Independence. And you've mentioned the two inquiries that happened into Bloody Sunday. So there's the Widgery Inquiry and the Savile Inquiry. Why are their findings so different? Because the Widgery Inquiry was a whitewash. Uh, it was a short-term expediency. It was deeply offensive in the narrowness of its scope and in its findings. It was rushed in order to try and bolster the particular narrative that suggested that the soldiers were not to blame. 
Um, that was never going to withstand historical scrutiny, and it was certainly never going to uh, withstand the uh, moral force uh, of the uh, families of the victims of Bloody Sunday and of the community generally, of their determination uh, for the personal testimonies uh, to be recognised. This, of course, took uh, a long, long time, um, you know, for it finally to be symbolically torn into pieces uh, after the Savile uh, inquiry. Um, but again, it brings you back to that whole area uh, of, of propaganda and short-term expediency and an attempt to try and, and control the narrative at an early stage in order to try and save face and save embarrassment and in order to try and place the blame on those who were ultimately the victims. Is there anyone who would say that the Widger inquiry wasn't a whitewash? Is there anyone who would stand by its findings? I don't think there's anyone who has any credibility who could defend or stand up for the Widgery report. How did the inquiries differ on how they reported on the victims themselves? I think the importance of the Savile Inquiry report is that it gives such weight to the personal testimony of those who were involved and those who were impacted uh, by Bloody Sunday. Um, This has been an interesting wider phenomenon in relation to seeking uh, to get to the the essence uh, of of these particularly difficult and and divisive historical episodes, um, can the testimony of those who were there be allowed to breathe, be allowed to illuminate? That is part of 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 the Savile inquiry's legacy, but it's also, I suppose, about uh, using the best of expertise in the modern sense to try and establish. Uh, precisely what happened. Um, and even in relation to, for example, ballistics uh, experts and, you know, when it comes to the shooting uh, of the arms on the day, uh, where the fire was coming from, um, you know, how those particular uh, aspects of the day transpired. Um, but I suppose also uh, in relation to trying to establish the the broader context, and the broader context is crucial. Bloody Sunday does not happen in a vacuum. You know, we have to look at what happened uh, before and what was building up uh, and where the momentum was uh, in relation to what was happening in, in Derry in particular, but also obviously uh, in Belfast uh, and the wider sense of the troubles. So the Savile Inquiry report does justice to that broader context uh, about events that were leading up uh, to what happened on Bloody Sunday. And that just sense of, of a much more layered, a multi-layered approach and a multi-layered picture. Uh, but it's also about giving dignity to those who were affected. And this is where you can leave the politics uh, aside, (laughs) insofar as you can ever leave the politics aside uh, in Northern Ireland. But when you actually think uh, about the the dignity of the individuals, treating them with respect, treating their testimony uh, with respect, and even if aspects uh, of the day are still disputed um, and some of the testimonies uh, are still disputed, you allow people the dignity of their say. Uh, that's hugely important. Um, there was often reference over the decades to the victims of Bloody Sunday and their families being left in what was described as a historical no man's land, um, that there wasn't the truth, that there wasn't even uh, an attempt to respect the testimony um, of, of, of those who were there on the day. And of course, these testimonies were collected very shortly after Bloody Sunday. 
uh, by the Northern Ireland Civil Rights Association and others who were involved uh, in civil liberties and civil rights groups. Um, and they were eventually published in 1997. And Don Mullins um, uh, did a, a terrific job in, in, in putting those testimonies into print. Um, so what eventually resulted in the Savile Inquiry was really about decades of, of activism, uh, about a, a search for justice, uh, about a determination not to let these issues lie because you couldn't, such was the scale of the trauma uh, and such was the um, degree of damage uh, that was done. Um, you, it couldn't be let lie. But that was also about committed individuals convening year after year to commemorate a Bloody Sunday, to remember the victims. And that was a hugely important part, I think, of the process, um, that there was a ritual around remembering around commemorating Bloody Sunday. Uh, and that ultimately, of course, gave people the focus to keep campaigning until they got answers. And what was the reaction of the public to the inquiries? There was a very moving day in Guildhall Square in Derry when David Cameron, as British Prime Minister, unreservedly apologised for what had happened on Bloody Sunday. He said it was unjustifiable and it could not be justified. That was a moment that thousands had been waiting for for decades. And that reaction was very emotional. It was very dignified. Um, it was uh, in its own way also joyous um, in the sense that it was like the, the lifting of a suffocating weight uh, for so many people. Um, whereas, of course, in, in previous, uh, you know, in the immediate aftermath um, of, of, of Bloody Sunday, the reaction to some of the narratives that were developing was just one of disgust and, and disbelief from nationalists. The idea that they were essentially being blamed for what had transpired on Bloody Sunday. Um, there's an extraordinary scene in the House of Commons where Bernadette Devlin, uh, the MP, uh, physically attacks Reginald Maudling, uh, the Home Secretary, because of what she regarded as the lies that he was telling in the House of Commons. Um, that'll give you an idea, I suppose, of, of the uh, extent and depth of the feeling that it generated. But it's also interesting, I think, that the, the government of the Republic was conscious throughout the peace process that there was unfinished business in relation to these events, uh, that whilst in one way they could be considered historic events, they weren't historic for those who were affected by them because they hadn't got any resolution and because they hadn't got the answers and that there was a lot of unresolved issues and there still are unresolved issues. They're now euphemistically termed legacy issues uh, from the Troubles. But part of the peace process was about applying political pressure for at least some of those unresolved issues to be addressed. And you've mentioned unresolved issues. How is Bloody Sunday still affecting the people and politics of Northern Ireland today? I think Bloody Sunday will always be a reference point. Bloody Sunday will always be invoked as a reminder uh, of, of the horrors uh, of the Troubles um, and of how it can continue uh, to permeate so many different lives and, and so many different perspectives. Um, of course, it also brought people down different paths. You know, there were some who were determined um, to 
try and develop uh, a momentum in the aftermath of it, a political uh, momentum. There were others who were determined uh, that the only way now uh, to resolve the crisis in Northern Ireland was to get the British Army out. Um, so people went in different directions. People went down different paths um, as a result of Bloody Sunday. Um, it also, of course, I think was a reminder uh, to the government of the Republic uh, of the complications of a solution uh, to the problem. Was there going to be what was called an Irish dimension? In other words, was the British government going to recognise that the Republic needed to have a role uh, in solving this crisis? Uh, that took some time, of course, uh, to be established. And of course, for, for, for unionists who had such supremacy and dominance in Northern Ireland for so long, uh, it was a reminder of how their authority uh, was being eroded. Uh, that sense that they were losing control uh, because this was very much, of course, about the, the British military presence. And this was also um, uh, an illustration that they were not in control uh, of Northern Ireland. And of course, Stormont was prorogued, uh, the Northern Ireland Parliament, uh, very shortly afterwards. And you had the introduction of direct rule. And for my final question, why should we remember Bloody Sunday today? We should remember Bloody Sunday today because it was a defining moment for the island of Ireland because it underlined the degree of trauma, of divisions that had impacted Northern Ireland in such a profound way, not just as a result of the outbreak of the Troubles. This happened in Derry City. Derry City had been a contested place for centuries. You go right back to the early 17th century, to the creation of Derry, um, it's the whole question of, of uh, what was involved in the plantations uh, of Ireland and, and the um, contested identities and the dual identities that emerged as a result of that. Uh, I suppose what you got in, in Bloody Sunday uh, was a manifestation of so many different historic tensions. And what it did was it exacerbated and opened up so many fault lines uh, within Northern Irish society, but also in relation to uh, Anglo-Irish affairs. Um, and of course, it raised very interesting questions about North-South dynamics also. That was Dermot Ferreter, Professor of Modern Irish History at University College Dublin. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley.